I'm Tom Kerr. Traditionally, the term mental health has been treated as a claims pariah in workers' comp, as it's been associated with delaying claims and sending costs spiraling out of control. Yet, ignoring the reality that psychosocial factors exist in mostly all claims is perhaps the biggest cause for these problems. In part two of our mental health podcast series, we asked Tammy Bradley and Mary Ellen Blue if addressing mental health in the initial assessment and throughout the claim can actually have a positive effect on claims management. Mary Ellen, let's first address the biggest concern regarding mental health factors and workers' comp, that psychosocial factors drive up claim cost. In your experience, has this been the case? Tom, another long-standing myth in workers' compensation is that mental health issues will drive up claims costs and delay return to work. And when you're reading various journals, various uh, statistical reports on the cost of workers' compensation, it's really easy to understand why many claims professionals believe that mental health conditions drive up the cost of claims and delay return to work. Uh, there was a report from the International Risk Management Institute that estimated that substance abuse and mental health disorder costs employers between 80 to 100 billion in indirect costs. And there was another study that found that of workers who reported feeling symptoms of depression one month, six months, and a year post-injury, that only 10% were able to return to work. Now, although there's often a connection between high claims costs, de uh, delayed return to work, and mental health issues, many of those who subscribe to this myth have the connection backwards. Depression isn't really causing the inability to return to work. Rather, it's the inability to return to work that frequently causes the resulting depression. It's important to remember that, again, work really defines who you are as a person. It's one of the things in your life that gives you purpose in life and is a large part of your personal identity. And unfortunately, when that's taken away from you, depression, stress, and anxiety can really set in. Tammy, when you talk about reducing cost as they relate to mental health issues, what can employers do to handle this issue? Thanks, Tom. You know, I think that's a really important point to make. There's so much that can be done in our world, we would say pre-claim, but from an employer preventive perspective. You know, I think we have to get beyond the misconception that mental health can't be approached from a preventive perspective. And the most cost-effective way to address it is to have employee-based programs that uh, address mental health. Each of us have mental health just like we have physical health. You know, we're expected to eat well, exercise, have our yearly health and wellness visits and to the doctor, to the dentist, to prevent us from developing chronic conditions. Mental health is really no different. Mental health at work is a crucial factor for employee wellness, engagement, as well as diversity and inclusion. And that's something I don't think we talk about a lot. Do you know one in five Americans manages a diagnosable mental health condition in any given year? And to add to what Mary Ellen said earlier, the business cost of unsupported and untreated mental health conditions and stigma uh, is significant. Each year, over 217 
million days are lost from work, either due to absenteeism and presenteeism. And this is pretty significant. Employers who offer EAP programs, general health and wellness programs, are taking preventive action. You know, and it's really hard to separate the physical from the mental. When you think about mental distress, if left unchecked, can result uh, in not only mental health issues, but physical deterioration as well. I do think employers are becoming increasingly aware that worker health influences worker productivity and that productivity obviously has an impact on the organization's performance and competitiveness in the market. Risk factors like smoking, sedentary lifestyle, high cholesterol, hypertension, poor diet, weight, excessive alcohol consumption, high blood glucose, all of these things are risk factors. But you know the risk factor predicting the largest medical cost increase that one study found was actually depression. Employees who reported being depressed were 70% more expensive than their non-depressed coworkers. I think that's a pretty astounding fact. Mental health-friendly workplaces really are those that value the overall health and well-being of their employees, including their mental health, and have specific practices and policies in place, policies and practices that can include valuing diversity, treating mental illness with the same urgency as you treat a physical illness, promoting healthy work-life balance, and providing training for managers, supervisors, and even the staff on mental health issues in the workplace. Having a mental health-friendly workplace really supports employees so that they feel comfortable seeking treatment and provide them and having resources available like EAPs and, and allowing them to feel comfortable actually utilizing those resources. I read in one article that the use of EAPs has been uh, reported as low as 4.5%. And that's pretty sad and, and very shocking to me. But the reason why uh, employees reported that it was so infrequently used was, you know, the fear of the stigma that would be attached to them if they did seek out and ask for help. And that's really sad. So I do think in order for change to occur, we do have to continue to expand our understanding of workplace mental health from not only the availability of resources, but the stigma that's historically been attached to it as well. And you touched on this, but I'd like to dig a little deeper into it. When mental health issues are not addressed during a claim, what can happen? Well, you know, I think it's pretty simple. A, a very simple claim or diagnosis can escalate into a complex one, you know, where it exceeds the usual and customary guidelines for both treatment and return to work. We talk a lot about the 80-20 rule, where 20% of the claims are driving 80% of the cost. You know, it starts out simple, a back strain, the reserves are set and everything's going along, but all of a sudden the claim's not resolving as expected, as predicted. Often this is due to these underlying psychosocial issues and if not addressed can escalate, resulting in longer claim durations and increased indemnity costs as well as medical payments. Let's take a look at an example. If you look at three views of the same person, a 50-year-old with a low back strain, 
primary diagnosis, no secondary diagnosis or comorbid. If you look at the nationally recognized guidelines, the average duration for this diagnosis would be about 23 days. It would have a, a risk score of around 40, and the claim typical cost would be around $7,600. Now in view two, take that same diagnosis and add a comorbid condition of depression. The average duration, according to the guidelines, goes from 23 days to up to 42 days with a risk score now of 65 and a claim typical cost of over $14,000. So you've already seen that simple diagnosis doubling cost there. Now, third example, you take that same diagnosis and you give it a secondary diagnosis of depression, meaning it started out back strain, but they developed underlying mental health issues and they were diagnosed uh, subsequently with depression. Now your average duration is up to 90 days and your risk score is up to 67 and your claim typical cost could be as much as $73,000. So I think this is why it's so important that we identify these issues earlier versus later in the claim so that they can be addressed while the physical healing is occurring and we can keep these disability durations and overall claim costs down. Yeah, those really are some steep costs. So let me ask you this, Tammy, how do case managers work with injured employees to get a true sense of what's needed to recover safely and efficiently? Yeah, Tom, you know, to achieve, I think, the best possible outcomes and really get someone back to work with minimal delay, as I said earlier, case managers must look beyond that primary diagnosis and always be using that wide lens or holistic view of that injured employee. And that includes looking at any psychosocial issues that may exist. We really have to consider the potential stress and anxiety an injured employee may have around their inability to work. They could also have concern over being able to return to their pre-injury capacity. They could have financial stressors related to reduced income. They could be concerned over not being able to pay their bills. They may not have the availability of support of a support system, whether it's a, a significant other family member or even a close friend. They may not feel that they have anyone to help them during their recovery. And I think then you have to look at putting those stressors that we are all experiencing today around the pandemic on top of that People are also feeling isolated. They have fear of exposure. They may have additional stressors around adjusting to the change that's been brought about as a result of the pandemic. They may have suffered a loss of a family member, a friend, or even a coworker. And they may even be concerned that while they're trying to treat for their injury, that they could be potentially exposed. So I think all of these things add you know, one little tick at a time or, you know, add additional stressors to a person. As case managers, we have to look for all of these signs of potential health challenges, and we probably get to know that injured employee better than anyone else that's involved. 
you know, better than the employer, uh, even the claims handlers, you know, because we are having frequent contact with them, we're getting to know them, oftentimes we're getting to know their family as well. And the more we know about them, you know, the better equipped we are to have very uh, pointed conversations with them and discuss any of these concerns they may be having. We also use different techniques like motivational interviewing and behavioral coaching to really help us uncover uh, these underlying barriers to recovery. It doesn't mean that every injured employee that we talk to or work with are feeling stress or anxiety to the point of needing psychological intervention. Oftentimes, it may just be having the case manager offer support and an opportunity for that injured employee to really vent their concerns. Often that's all they need is someone that has time to listen and really support them in their journey to recovery. Apart from work, there are other areas of our life that have been affected in their questions that we can ask that injured employee in our ongoing conversations to really help us uncover some of those underlying issues, asking them open-ended questions. What else do you miss about working? Have you been finding yourself feeling down in the dumps about your current situation? We've been trained to pick up on certain cues from their responses, and this really helps us to identify some of those issues. I also think as case managers, we're in a great place to coach, provide general tips, to the injured employee, you know, things around avoiding alcohol and other drugs, trying to encourage them to get out and spend time with loved ones and, and friends, helping them to, you know, understand that they need to maintain normal routines around eating, exercise, and sleep, helping them to, and encouraging them to stay active. Oftentimes we see people when they're injured, they take to the couch because they are in pain and as a result of that, they may not be eating right, they're certainly not getting the level of exercise that they previously did prior to injury. So it's really important that we encourage them to stay active, try to do all of the or as many of the activities of daily living as they did prior to their injury so they don't lose that normal routine. There are also things that can help relieve stress in, around things like meditation, yoga, again, getting out and walking each day. But overall, engaging that injured employee in their recovery and return to work really is key to successful resolution. And I do believe that through coaching and education, we can equip them with the tools and the support they need to really feel empowered, make informed decisions, and get themselves on the road to recovery. Thank you, Tammy and Mary Ellen. In the next podcast, we'll discuss the rise of post-traumatic stress disorder claims in workers' comp and its relationship to COVID-19. Until then, please check out the ebook Strategies for Combating Mental Health Challenges in Injured Employees. And as always, thanks for listening.